Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Lost another one. <laughs> fucking people are just dropping like flies now. <laughs> Getting really tired of opening these things with some sort of death. <laughs> I was kind of hoping you were going to put together a special intro of all George H.W. Bush quotes. Oh, yeah. that would have been a good idea. I yeah. should have done that. Really, you could just could have done Dana Carvey, and that yes. would have sufficed. Yes. <laughs> Not going to do it. That guy was back in the news this week for the first time in years. <laughs> <laughs> good for him. Yeah. If anything good is going to come out of this, That's it's right. that. Dana Carvey's back. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Welcome back, guys. Uh, Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hey. Howdy. Hey. Uh, before we get started, typical stuff. Uh, if you guys like the podcast, questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, um, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P O L, uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped that you can download on iOS and Android. We are just Barstool Politics. The podcast, uh, SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, uh, lots of different podcasting platforms. So share us through there, review us through there. Um, we always appreciate the support. Um, and then, yeah, we are, as you know, for our regular listeners uh, and for you new people, uh, we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a political prediction market, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Um, super fun to look at. Uh, we use it all the time to, you know, depending on what we're talking about, to inform us on sentiments on, on specific issues, uh, current events, things that are kind of going on in the world. Um, what's great for our listeners is that uh, if you open an account, uh, you will receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. So if you open up a $20 account, uh, Predictit will match the $20. So you get $40 to use on Predictit. Uh, all you have to do is use the promo link, which is predictit.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20, uh, and get your free money. Like I said, lots of fun. Definitely check it out. Super simple um, and pretty pretty spot on yeah they've been doing they do well they do well the people know the people know <laughs> money knows that's right just follow the money um yeah that's about it but before we get to you know the obvious thing of of george bush and all that stuff uh Mueller is now rearing his ugly head again and i'm, I'm just I'm so it's it's gonna tired. it's gonna get exciting it's next. not gonna get exciting. oh it is it's just not so now that the midterm, the midterm elections are over, the special counsel investigation is heating up. In just the, lack, just the last week, the plot turns have been thrilling, Nick. Thrilling. No, they haven't. Let's review. Uh, last week, we talked about the special counsel pulling its plea deal with Paul Manafort for the, his repeated lies. On Thursday, Michael Cohen pled guilty to lying to Congress about details surrounding the building of a Trump Tower in Moscow. In the court documents, President Trump is identified as individual one. I bet he likes that. 
I mean, it's better than being individual two. Yeah, he's number one. Yeah. <laughs> now Trump, nobody had a hand. Trump didn't appreciate Cohen's testimony and spent much of the week attacking him on Twitter, suggesting Cohen should serve a, quote, full and complete sentence, whereas others like Roger Stone has guts because they will, quote, never testify against Trump. In the olden days, we used to call that witness tampering. Uh, and then late Tuesday, we learned that Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, uh, was so helpful with the special counsel's investigation, they recommended he should receive little to no prison time for lying to federal investigators. Rat. <laughs> Whole family's rats. Oh, Phil. <clears throat> Trump appears to have surrounded himself with a lot of pathological liars. They lied to federal authorities, even though they knew the risk of getting caught was high. Now, why would they do that? And how worried should Trump be that so many of them have become such good cooperators with the special counsel's office. <laughs> um, <laughs> why, why did they lie to federal authorities? Because they're guilty. Because they did stuff. Um, how worried should he be? I, that's a good question. I, I, don't, I spend a lot of, I, I don't know, I go back and forth on this. I think um, uh, on one hand, in terms of all of the stuff coming out, like all of the, you know, all of the garbage of what happened with the Trump Tower deal and the meetings with Russians and, and meetings with WikiLeaks, if that, if that occurred and all yeah. that stuff. Um, he, he should be worried, right? Like this is all, this is gonna come out. Um, I, I think that's, I, that's the part of this last week that I found interesting with, with, um, Mueller, like the, the, the Cohen, um, plea deal, uh, for him to go back in again and plead guilty to something else. Uh, I saw somebody talking about, um, you know, so, so now, um, that there's been a change in leadership at the, in the department of justice and, uh, why can't I think of his name? Matt Matthew Whitaker. Whitaker. Yeah. Um, now that he's in in place over this investigation, there's all sorts of questions about you know the report will go to him and then he gets to decide if it goes on to Congress and all of that. Um, I, I saw somebody basically uh, pointing out that what's happening is that Mueller is Mueller has other ways of getting the information to Congress, right? Mm -hmm. What this plea deal was about was essentially about lying to Congress. So by making these filings in public, he's he's giving a report to Congress on stuff that's happened. So it's going to it's all going to come out. And so if if Trump if we're talking about Trump, he should be worried about that. The other part of the equation that I can't quite figure out is whether or not he should be worried about the implications of that, mm -hmm. because I, I still have yet I, I'm. I'm not convinced one way or the other that Congress would or wouldn't act, that anything would happen. The fact that he is openly witness tampering on Twitter, I, I can't quite wrap my head around, right? Like right. this is, um, it's become standard for Trump, but it's the sort of thing that if that were an email, the, the what he said, if that were an email that a different person had written that leaked, it would be a massive story. Yes. But he's just doing it so openly that I, I, I kind of wonder how much of it is when you find out that it's being done secretly, it seems bad. Yes. And when you're open about it, it doesn't seem so bad. So um, that my, that's my long winded way of saying yeah. that I think he should be worried because all of this is going to come out. All what's what all happened is going to become public knowledge at some point. Um, I'm not sure that he should be worried about. I, I don't know how what that what the impact of that will mm -hmm. be. Right, how the political process will respond. I think you're 100% right. They had a bunch of federal prosecutors on this week talking about the Cohen testimony, and not only the Cohen, but also Trump's tweets, specifically witness tampering. And they said, is it similar to what you said? Usually what this happens is it's behind the scenes. Somebody, you know, tells somebody and they get recorded like, you know, if you talk, you're, you know, you're going to jail, we're going to not go to jail, we're going we're gonna to kill you kind of thing. And nobody says this openly. 
But Trump will, in some ways, it's kind of the brilliance of Trump in that he doesn't care. He'll just say it openly. But if he had done this behind the scenes, it absolutely would be witnessing, witness tampering. But he's not saying it. It's in quotes. Someone else <laughs> right. said it. That's which, right. realistically, you know that's going to be a legal argument somewhere. Oh, yeah. Because this, I, I mean, most of the statements that he made, it's a... It's someone else stating something which yeah. could conceivably be considered witness tampering if he was saying it. And it's going to be that legal loop, legal loophole that saves him if this ever comes up in he, this investigation. He's very good. I mean, there's a lot of things where he doesn't know much about anything, but he's very good at the legal stuff and sort of covering mm-hmm. himself. It's, he's had a lot of practice, but... Um, I also is, wonder... Is he actually good at it, or is it just that, like, our standards are so screwed up now? Could be. like, this, if I if I were an attorney and my client did that openly on Twitter, I wouldn't I wouldn't think, oh, that's a brilliant legal strategy. My client's <laughs> smart. I think, what an idiot. Yes. Well, I think but somehow, it's like our standards of what is a good legal strategy change with him. But anyway. Well, I think it's... You have to think about the position, too, which we've talked about. I think there's enough kind of vagueness and understanding of what you're supposed to do with a person in this particular position and what they say. I don't think, I think after this, we'll have a really good idea of what should be done, especially um, if something comes out of the investigation. But I like, how do you, how do you effectively prosecute the president of the United States <clears throat> for these specific issues that realistically are very cut and dry in most other situations and this is i i don't know i i think they're having a real time from a legal perspective kind of wrangling with this well and in some ways Mueller doesn't have to worry about prosecuting him because it, most people suggest that Mueller's not going to try to prosecute he's going to build this report right build the indictments and then hand it to congress and say here's what's happened here's the truth you guys do with it what you will and he so, so that relieves a bit of a burden for him he doesn't have to prosecute it he can drop it in Congress's lap and say, you know, historically, all of these would have been crimes. This would have been witness tampering. He lied. All of that would have come out. Uh, and then to Phil's point, then then it's going to be what are the political ramifications from this? Does Congress have a spine to say, if there is something here, will they move forward? I, I know I've shifted for a long time or I don't know, over the last couple months, I've thought that there was going to be more legs to the obstruction of justice charge. It felt like, well, maybe there wasn't a ton with the Russian angle, but Trump was trying to hide something and he might get himself in trouble with obstruction. But the Cohen stuff, uh, the idea that those those conversations with Russia, with a high-level Putin aide, went on almost all the way to the Republican convention and that Trump was aware of all of that, for me, that has brought back the Russian potential collusion right. stuff big time. If you want to understand why he would obstruct justice, it's because he had something to hide. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, most people don't go about obstructing justice just, like, for a hobby. It, right. that's, that's, it's fun to I feel lie. like it is kind of a yes. hobby at this point. Well, and then the other thing, so if you guys, have, if the listeners have looked at all at the Michael Cohen, not the Michael Cohen, I'm sorry, the Michael Flynn, God, there's so many liars that it's, it's hard to keep them all straight. Oh, God, the teacher's pet? Yeah. What a dick. <laughs> no, 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 the, 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 the report that was released yesterday by Mueller. Oh, yeah, I was just talking about Michael Flynn. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. go on. Uh, so it's all redacted. I mean, it's like 90% of it is you, it's just black lines. Mm-hmm. But there's one section that's open and where they talked about how good of a cooperator Flynn is. <laughs> and they said that he was, you know, he was excellent and provided great cooperation addressing you know cooperation between Trump associates and Russia and that language was there which in some ways was Mueller I felt tipping his hand to say there was contact now he hasn't said what it looks like 
But either, I mean, it may not rise to the level of the president, but if I'm Don Jr., if I'm Javanka, if I'm, you know, those guys have to be terrified because Mueller is seeing something and Flynn has laid it all clear for them, I bet. Well, uh, the fact that they keep delay, they have delayed Flynn sentencing for yes. so long is evidence of, I mean, that's because he was continuing to cooperate and, and, and give stuff. Yeah, you, you've got to be. Yeah, you have to be. I think that that you're right. The the difference between Trump and some of the people around him, his family and closest associates, is that for Trump, you know, there's a difficulty in that the lines of legal and political get blurred, right? So we're talking about legal stuff, but it's a political thing here when you get to the issues of impeachment. For the other people, that's not the case, right? This is not a you don't. It's nothing political about whether or not. Um, you know, Kushner or, or Don Jr. gets in, indicted on 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 uh, charges related to this, and so um, or, or I, even I, Roger Stone, right? I mean, Roger Stone. Right. Uh, yesterday, he came out and he said he's taking the fifth, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and the the brilliant thing is, is that you know, my uh, Flynn uh, during I don't know one of his interviews before all this flame, he you know he said anybody who's taken the fl- fifth is guilty, right? I, and I don't think that's always right. true, but uh, there's just so much going on here that. That inner circle has to be terrified. Well, I mean, his reasoning for doing that was he said that the the stipulations of the subpoena were too they were too vague. Which realistically, I, I mean, the breadth of the investigation and the understanding of what should and should not be considered evidence in this situation, I think, is pretty vague. Sure. I, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that <clears throat> he's not guilty, but I think that there is enough doubt and political sway within the investigation to make that a viable defense absolutely he still probably lied probably <laughs> i mean so in one of trump's tweets the one about roger stone where you know he says quote i will never testify against trump this statement was recently made by roger stone essentially stating that he will not be forced by a rogue and out of control prosecutor to make up lies and stories about president trump Nice to know that some people still have guts. Quote, guts. <laughs> right. And so Trump's argument here is that this prosecutor, Robert Mueller, is out of control and that he's forcing, Phil, he's forcing people to lie and go to jail. You think that's... This is the, this is the head of the, of the judiciary, like the judicial branch of the government, right? This is the chief law enforcement officer tweeting about how people who cooperate with law enforcement are pieces of shit, right? Like, this is insane. It's insane that he's doing this, that the people who hold out and don't rat out on their friends are, in fact, the heroes. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> it really unbelievable. is. I mean, you think about, like, Cohen, where, you know, Trump literally in his tweet said that he should go to jail and serve a full sentence and, you know, we should throw the book at him because he told the truth. Now, again, one of one of Trump's brilliant strategies is that he, he appears to have surrounded himself with total liars so that when they lie, when they, when they turn against him, he can say, like, see this liar I employed? Mm-hmm. He's a liar. You shouldn't trust him. And I like how you think that's a brilliant strategy and not just a, a factor, a, like a result of the type of people that Donald Trump surrounds. <laughs> there's, there's that too, right? But it, do you think it's going to complicate things that all of these individuals? I mean, Cohen is no hero, right? He is. He's not a patriot. Paul Manafort isn't. Michael. I mean, Michael Flynn in some ways was, but uh, you know, he might be slightly different. I don't know. All these guys are sleazeballs. Papadopoulos. Um, well, that's... They're all, <clears throat> go ahead. They're go. all self-interested. I mean, yeah, that, right. that's, that's the common theme. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, realistically, the issue, while 
you may think that they're good, you know, foot soldiers and people that are going to follow you. They're also going to try and save their own skin no matter what. Yeah, I, yeah they, they have no interest in saving. There's no reason for them to try and save him at this point. I mean, he's thrown him to the wolves. Why, why would you? And, and Robert Mueller is smart enough to know that he can't base his case on the testimony of one of them, right? If he's, if he's got his everything you know, dependent upon Manafort or Cohen or Papadopoulos or Flynn or any of these guys, that's not good enough. So I have to think he knows almost everything at this point. And it's just a matter of how he's going to play his hand. And I don't know, just the last week and a half makes me think that it's going to be devastating. Over the next month or so, this is not going to be good for Trump. I think he has to be. I mean, this is this is the play, the point where I, I don't know that I don't I don't believe that Trump is like being strategic when he tweets <laughs> the stuff out. Right. He's the he's the reflex machine, yeah. as we've talked about. So someone does something and he lashes out. But. I do think that the the aspect of it that that might be good for him strategically is that he continues to bring it back around to there's you know no collusion no collusion yeah. which um, the end result is that that's what people are expecting mm-hmm. collusion yeah. and so when you have witness tampering or all this other stuff it seems small in comparison <laughs> right never mind that when we talk about big criminal you know when we talk about Richard Nixon or we talk about you know it's the little stuff that brings them down right it's the little stuff they the, the that uh, that ends up being their downfall but in this case by continuing to refer to this bigger thing I, I think that he has a chance of if if all that comes out of it is that he that <laughs> people lied to congress and he tampered with witness and obstructed right. justice there might be yeah. enough people who are like well that's not collusion right um and so that's where i think Mueller has like i don't think he should have to right like there's enough yeah. evidence of criminal activity as is but i think um, i i suspect that Mueller knows or suspects that he has to have this pretty clear linkage by the time he when he turns in this report if he really wants that if, if you come in and say I, we never could establish connections to russia but you know he he did try to interfere with my investigation i don't think that's going to go anywhere i that's a i mean that's that's a really good point i, I mean at this point if they based on his his behavior as well as the narrative that's kind of been formed around it if they don't come back with something that directly links him to russian collusion i don't care what the evidence is uh, outside of that it's it's going to be a severe severe problem and this is going to drag out for years i would bet probably till the end of his term i i wonder if for a large chunk of the american population there's anything that would come back that would achieve the the level that people have started expecting in terms of so even if a Mueller report comes out that trump knew of and approved meetings with russian officials to get information from you know russia about hillary clinton um that that's massive but i wonder if like unless it's you know putin and trump like secretly shaking hands and exchanging a suitcase (laughs) like i i think that they're they're that all of the rhetoric around it has created such expectations yeah. that that almost anything will be disappointing for people. It shouldn't be, right? Like just the stuff we know yeah. so far should be damning. But in, anyway, I, I wonder whether if you're thinking about the evidence that's out there, the most likely scenario is that the Trump Tower meeting ultimately was connected to the WikiLeaks dump, right? So there was a quid pro quo there, whether it was you know, to change the platform at the Republican convention or whether it was reducing sanctions. There, there might have been something there. And I wonder if that's the case, 
if they said, hey, you know, we've got this information, we'll help WikiLeaks dump it, uh, and you either reduce sanctions or, you know, you change the, the Republican platform, is that going to be enough? And, and, and it certainly would be enough for Democrats and, and half the country. Right. But, you know, when you, you talked about Nixon, what Nixon's downfall was brought by a handful of Republicans who said, this has gone too far, we support right. impeachment. I wonder, in this climate, are there going to be that that five to ten Republicans who who give this credibility to say, no, this is an impeachable offense. This has gone too far. And I, I'm not so sure anymore. Well, I mean, you're starting to see rumblings of people saying maybe Pence should run in 2020. Yeah. Or there's, you know, inklings that Trump could potentially get rid of Pence before that happens. I think not necessarily that from a, you know, moral legal standpoint that they would stand up to it but from a political strategic survival mm. standpoint that they would do something like that yeah you're you're not going to get the latter of the two yeah yeah or the former of the two i i i still i i think that I, I, I don't know. I still wonder if when all of this is put together in a coherent way, right, when all of these little stories like you're talking about come out, they seem bad. But if you take all of them and write them down in a coherent, like connect <laughs> yes. the dots report. So, you know, the stuff about Trump Tower, the meetings about developing a Trump Tower in, in Moscow, in which there were apparently discussions of giving the penthouse to Putin, <laughs> yes. um, like that that went on up to like like you were saying up to the Almost nomination. The like he's yeah. actually in the midst of running for president while these discussions are going on. When you take all of that and then tie it into the fact that Russia is at that exact same time leaking, you know, trying to find Hillary's emails and leaking them to WikiLeaks who might be in contact with Roger yes. Stone. Like all of this stuff, like when you put that together, not as like, oh, that one little thing, they met with Russians about Trump Tower, that seems bad. Oh, they met with so-and-so about such and such, that seems bad. When you put it all together, I wonder if it will be so overwhelming that at that point there will be people, even, you know, within the Republican Party who yeah. are like, okay, this, we we can't, we can't just pretend this isn't happening right. anymore. It would. I mean, it would have to be. It would have to be ironclad. There could be no way out of it. And I don't think that he has. I. I, I don't think he has that kind of case. If there's any any doubt in this, it's it's going to be a a huge legal and political battle that we're not going to be able to get out of anytime soon. Trump's behavior of late makes me think Mueller might have that case, and Trump may know it, right? Because otherwise, if there's nothing there. Why is Trump so outrageous? Why is he so extreme? Why is he doing? You Have know, you been around the past two years? <laughs> <laughs> That's touche, Nicholas. <laughs> but I do wonder. I mean, there's a lot of ways that he could direct his energy, and, and I will say you're right. He does love a fight, but this feels like he's a bit panicked about it. Uh, and, and that makes me think that he, I mean, he will know whether he colluded. He knows whether he committed all these crimes and whether they're getting close. Uh, he did. <laughs> he did. <laughs> <laughs> and so his behavior of late, to me, suggests that he's he's worried. I mean, down at the G20, it was bizarre. He, you know, normally he loves tearing up these institutions, causing havoc, you know, just being a, just being a pain in the ass. He was none of that. You know, he was just sort of indifferent. Uh, and I think it was because he was worried about what all the stuff that's coming out. Me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't know. I, I it will be really. I hope something happens in the next month or so because I I frankly am tired of it. <laughs> I, I think we will know soon. I think that that your your desire for an airtight case 
um, I think that will be that wish will be fulfilled. I, I think that's what Mueller does, right? He has made a life, a career out of making these cases. Like he knows that he has to do that. Um, and, and so I think that, I, I don't know, I, I suspect that when it all comes out, it's going to be really damning. I know. It better be a, a Warren Commission sized report with flow charts and arrows pointing to people and the the board with strings going to do, it just, all leads to I trump at all <laughs> i don't think it's going to end up being the the bill clinton um ken whatever. star yeah the yeah. ken star report which which is like this huge amount of information that comes around to he lied under oath about this one right. question sort of thing i i think it's going to be uh, how airtight it will be, I don't know, but I think that it's going to be big stuff. It's not that, you know, it turns out that all this other stuff we were looking into didn't really happen, but, uh, you know, we didn't like that Trump tweeted about Roger Stone. Like, yeah. I, I can't imagine that's the sort of report that's going to come out. I hope not. Uh, it's mm, it's going to be really bad if well, that's the case. Yeah. I mean, even if, if there's one iota of that, it's going to be bad because they will... They will scratch that itch yeah. until it's and it, it, it's just going to be bad. Well, let's just think about there's been zero leaks coming from the special counsel. Every bit of information that they le not leak, that they release, is or they're always two steps ahead of everybody else. Yeah, I mean, they, which makes me think that Robert Mueller and that team knows what they're doing, and they get the political dynamics here. They understand the consequences and how to do this right, which makes me think that if they're doing this piece by piece, you know, they, they pulled back when the midterms are going on, not to be perceived as political. I think in the next month, it's good. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Jared and Don Jr. are the next two that get hit. And then whether it goes all the way up to the president, that's hard to know. Uh, but I think that's that's going to be the shoe that's going to drop, if I was guessing. And, and then Donald Trump's going to lose his mind. Exactly, that right? That's when it just is out of control. Um, yeah. Sending the National Guard to save my that's son. When, that's when he'll fire Mueller, yep. I think. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And, and Mueller knows all of this, right? So it, there's got to be a staging where he's a, he's got to have everything ready. Um, no, I think it's, it's going to hit the it. fan. He's making sure he has everything done before he releases that, knowing yep. that that's likely to push him to actually yeah. fire in the investigation. I, mm -hmm. I'm telling you, people should buy Don Jr. being indicted on Predicted. I think it's going to be a good, it's a good investment. <laughs> Oh my God! Uh, well, should we should we talk beer? Yeah. All right, uh, Phil. What's in that red solo cup? Uh, so tonight I'm drinking um, a uh, Portland Pale Ale. This is from Lone Pine Brewing Company out of Portland, Maine. And um, yeah, I'm not even going to try to come up with you know flowy words to describe it. It's good. I like it. It's an American <laughs> Pale Ale. I, I find nice. myself I really like American Pale Ales lately. I, I do the, too. Yeah. IPA. It's like a step back from the IPA. It's like it's got the hoppiness. It's anyway. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed this one. That's good. Nick, what are we drinking? Oh, God, what the hell are we drinking? We are drinking a, a Commodore Perry uh, IPA from uh, Great Lakes Brewing. Uh, they are out of Cleveland. Um, yeah, it it was okay. It was different than a yeah. standard IPA. Um, like you said, it felt kind of, it was more ambery, yeah. I guess, yeah. but it had kind of a a very sharp, almost metallic like bite to it yeah which you, you don't good. usually don't look for that in a beer you don't <laughs> it's it's almost expired though too so <laughs> that could thing. that could contribute to it read but the, read the description of it Nick. Uh, your, your radio right. voice is fantastic with this <laughs> what's this a british style ipa named after the man who defeated his majesty's royal navy in the war of 1812 consider this a bold hoppy and mildly ironic plunder of war i like that that's interesting he was also the guy as i was stating that forcibly opened japan to uh the west they drew him with like claws and fangs and stuff because he was so scary that he, beer would be less tasty it would be yeah. less tasty but 
probably more ironic than that's this. That's right. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I, I thought it was just okay. Yeah. You know? uh, we're, we're drifting into the like the fall beers, the Christmassy ales, and all that, that stuff. Yeah. No. You don't love a metallic expired metallic beer? No. <laughs> not not this but not this one. No. <laughs> we're just gonna give this one a pass just yeah. because we don't know. <laughs> it's because it's old. <laughs> um, if you like our reviews of old expired beer, uh, find us on Untapped on iOS and Android, uh, Barstool Politics. Uh, you can find our reviews uh, of everything that we try in there. So do that. It's fun. Yes. Speed round. Ooh. All right. So we got to start with the death of George H.W. Bush. He's dead. Yes. The 41st, pre- 41st president of the United States and father of the 43rd president died on Friday evening. George H.W. Bush ushered the country through a truly historic period in world affairs. He was president as the Cold War came to a peaceful end. Germany was reunited and led a coalition to oust Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. Yet for all of his success on the international arena, he did not enjoy the same success domestically and was ultimately defeated in his attempt for a second term as president by Bill Clinton. H.W. Bush entered the White House with one of the most impressive resumes of any president He'd been a two-time congressman from Texas, ambassador to the United Nations, chairman of the Republican National Committee, uh, the U.S. envoy to China, director of the CIA, vice president under Reagan. Uh, And speaking of Reagan, for all the hype that Reagan gets, I would argue that George H.W. Bush was one of the most successful foreign policy presidents of the 20th century. Uh, Phil, you know, the the coverage has been nonstop. What what was your reaction to all of this and and sort of reflecting on the legacy of George H.W. Bush? More importantly, how does this relate to Trump and how horrible he is, (laughs) as all of the cable news networks want to lead us down that road? So, um, I, you know, in, in I don't know if it's full disclosure. So I, George H.W. Bush was largely responsible for my interest in politics. Like, I, I, I feel like we I, we talked about this, I think, when Barbara Bush died, that I grew up but across remind the, the listeners. street from, from George H.W. Bush's personal secretary. And so I got to meet the Bushes a number of times as a kid. They were incredibly kind, welcoming people. Like, we went to their house in Kennebunkport. Like, they, it was just, they were just nice people. Braggard. Um, so I, I, I find this interesting. Like I, you know, I, 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 so I have kind of warm feelings towards him, but I'm going to go even a little further than you when you say that, that, uh, he's one of the most successful foreign policy presidents of the 20th of the 20th century. I, uh, I saw Dan Dresner talking about this on, on Twitter as well. I, I think that he's one of, of my lifetime. Um, one of the best presidents we've had. (laughs) Like this is, that is a controversial thing. I know. And I think one of the things that I don't like when somebody dies like this is that there's this tendency to go to one extreme or the other, that he was this wonderful, perfect person or look at all these terrible things he did. And the fact of the matter is everybody somewhere in the middle. Um, And so I don't want to downplay the some of the bad spots, the Willie Horton ad and some of the stuff related to Iraq. But I think in general, um, yeah, I mean, I think he was he like you said, oversaw this very impressive and important period in foreign policy. I think he doesn't he wasn't as successful domestically but i don't think he gets his his due for some of the stuff that he did do yeah um in a, in and in not like you said nick to bring it back to the state of politics today um you know this idea of of you know partisanship and and it felt like he was in it for the right reasons and anyway i i, I know that there's bad stuff about him but uh um he, he does kind of remind me of an era when it, it, politics was ugly then but it was a different type of ugly yeah. than it is, is now yeah mm-hmm. Nick? Yeah, I mean, he was the last living president who was uh, a veteran as well. He was one of the youngest uh, 
naval aviators, I guess, yeah. uh, of World he was War II. Youngest. He was like 19 or something. Yes. Yeah. I think I saw this crazy. week that he was the youngest. Yeah. The youngest, yeah. That's Shot crazy. down. <clears throat> Shot down. Um, yeah, he, um, you know, realistically, the news coverage, I, I completely stay away from it because it is... I, I think it's frankly hypocritical, the people that are, you know, fawning over him and would otherwise be saying, you know, talking about <clears throat> his failed policy in Iraq, uh, Iraq and Kuwait and taxes and mm-hmm. him throwing up in the Japanese prime minister, all that good stuff that nobody talks about. Um, <laughs> Which is one of the most awkward things any president has ever done. If is- you haven't seen that video, oh. look it up immediately because it's hilarious. He just kind of keels over and just... It just comes out of him, and the Japanese prime minister like cradles him and rubs his head yeah. to like. I mean, it was it was in some ways like an awkward, but also a dear bathroom. moment. Like, yeah. oh, I'm sorry, this is happening to you. <laughs> no, I, the fact that that is so shocking is like a testament to the extent to which we like dehumanize our presidents, oh, yeah. right? Like, they're not people who actually get sick and, and do this sort of yeah. thing. No, I I think he was a a genuinely good person who had the best interest of the country at heart. Um, I I think that. You know, he was effective from a foreign policy standpoint, which has not been the case with most of mm-hmm. the uh, the presidents uh, of late. Um, I think there there's some cases to be made that he could have been more of a uh, a staunch um, proponent of um, democracy initiatives as the the Cold War was ending. Uh, he you know could have potentially done more in Iraq, but. I guess we saw how that turned out when yeah, his kid was in power. The AIDS crisis at home. Did yeah, the AIDS well crisis, obviously. And then, yeah. you know, you, you have the, you know, no new taxes thing and then yeah. raises taxes. But you avert a, a, a deepening recession in doing that. I think he was pragmatic enough to understand what was going on. He um, was it the, the Clean Air Act mm-hmm. that he that signed. Yeah. Yep. One of the most sweeping environmental changes yep. in in the history of the country. Uh, the he, American with Disabilities Act. Yeah, that's under him as well. He was again. He was pragmatic and he was willing to work with the opposition, who realistically were not necessarily the opposition. They were colleagues mm-hmm. that had differing opinions. I I don't see that anymore, and it it saddens me to think that yeah. that's a. a Re, it's it's almost an extinct breed at this point. The, some it, of the restraint that he showed to me was a sign of being a good foreign policy president, right? So mm-hmm. when it came to the end of the Cold War, he knew enough not to go and dance on the Berlin Wall and celebrate because that would have made things more difficult for the Soviet Union. Been fun. It would have been inter- I mean, it would have been easy to do that, and I think Reagan may have. You know, I mean, that's the thing. There's a difference between Reagan and Bush there. Uh, when it came to the Iraq War. He knew he was smart enough to know that trying to topple Saddam was a whole, you know, a basket of trouble that he didn't want to get into. So some of that restraint and realizing that the the United States can do a lot in the world, but they can't just dictate world events. That that humility, I think, was really um, well served in terms of foreign policy. You know, there's there's a lot. It's, it's, you know, Phil and I being in the world of international relations, he is highly respected uh, mm-hmm. in, in many ways. I think his success is is way greater than Reagan's. Reagan screwed things yeah. up foreign policy-wise throughout his eight years, and it was just... Hey, like, hey, hey, calm down. No, no, he did. <laughs> uh, you know, And at the end, he built this relationship. Reagan built a relationship with Gorbachev that helped end the Cold War, but mm-hmm. that's kind of it for Reagan. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about partisanship and how mm-hmm. that sort of drives everything these days and how we lament that to some extent, but it, this is an example of someone where if you step back, if, if you 
if you just chalk some of the differences up to these are I don't agree with his policies, but I look at how he handled the office and how he went about the president. There's a, that's it's easy to have a lot of respect for him and the way that he, you know, pursued things, even on those issues that I didn't necessarily uh, you know, agree with him on in terms of, of politics. And that's, it would be nice if we could have, I, yeah. you know, I, Donald Trump is an example of if I step back and talk about, think about how I differ from him on policy, it's hard for me to still at that point think, well, but he's doing a good job as president, <laughs> right? right? right. And so, Easy there, Don Lemon. You know, what are the, what are the, and we got to move on. One of the interesting <laughs> things about the eulogies when they talk about Trump, I'm sorry, when they talk about uh, George H.W. Bush, even if they're if they're saying nice things about Bush, it feels like they're taking shots at Donald Trump. That's what it is. Well, no, I mean, but in some ways it's not. They're saying like he was an honest, thoughtful man who cared about people's feelings. And you're like, oh god, he's really ripping Trump. You're like, no, he's just he's just saying nice things. No, yeah, I I, I don't think that. I, I think there's been enough blatant where they they say something about Bush and then they immediately turn to Trump isn't <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. the, specifically saying that. Yeah. Um. That whole exchange with um, Meghan McCain and and Joy Behar, that yeah, freaking hands. I, I think there was more of that when McCain died than there was with Bush dying, but there there was certainly some of it. But I think Trump brings that on himself, where you know, yeah. And, Mc, and McCain oh, yeah. in his in his final year had, had had made a point of taking on Trump in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. and we, that, mm -hmm. that made it that made that comparison more. Uh, either appropriate or more obvious than than you know yeah. George H W Bush, who was largely apolitical in the in yeah. the end of his life. Yep. I don't know if you guys saw, but I know we need to move on. But real quickly, uh, George W Bush today at the at the uh, eulogy. Oh, that was rough. It, it had. I mean, it was very difficult. But yeah. when he walks in, so all of the ex presidents oh, are lined yeah. up there with Donald Trump <laughs> and George W Bush, who I I disagreed with a lot of him foreign policy wise, but he had brought a piece of candy and if you haven't seen the video you know when he's shaking everybody's hand when he gets to Michelle Obama he hands her a little piece of candy this mm -hmm. is a tradition that they've had right. and you there see was... yeah you see the, the I don't know the humanity in the bushes that that in some ways we don't see in the current president and you see that in a lot of the presidents um, ex-presidents so that was that was interesting to see that contrast yeah. and his eulogy um, was very it was, oh. oh god that was heart-wrenching oh I, I can't imagine <clears> doing <throat> that so mm -hmm. all right moving on next topic Nick, I am tariff man. Awesome. <laughs> Following their meeting at the G20 conference, President Trump announced a 90-day trade truce with China. In a tweet celebrating the accomplishment, he noted, quote, relations with China have taken a big leap forward. Should he have gone? I mean, should he yes. have gone? Okay, all right. Don't <laughs> reference the Great Leap Forward when you're talking that's, about that's, China. Thank you. <laughs> a day later, he warned that he would uh, revert to tariffs if the two sides could not resolve their differences. Quote, if a deal is possible, Trump tweeted, we will get it done. But if not, remember, I am tariff man. <laughs> he, he's, I am a tariff man. He's not a superhero. <laughs> I, I'm leaving the A out intentionally. <laughs> the markets don't appear to like tariff man. Uh, and the, the market plunged yesterday. Phil, this standoff is bigger than just trade deals. It often feels as if the United States and China are engaging in an awkward slow dance, trying to determine what the nature of the relationship will be. What's your read on this and what should we be looking for? Um... So I, I don't I don't know I'm not going to answer maybe I'm going to answer your question indirectly. Um, 
I don't know. There's a, there's a number of things that that come up with in terms of this whatever's happening between Trump and, and China. I yeah. think one of the things that seems to jump out to me is that this is the pattern that he has with these situations. He creates an international crisis, then he somehow you know steps back from it and claims to have solved the international crisis <laughs> that he created, and that seems to be like. He starts essentially a trade war with China, and then by like reaching some agreement to back off, he's like, "I've I've done it." Um, which he's is, an arsonist which, that yeah. tries to put the fire out. Yeah, I mean, North <laughs> Korea, China, the, uh, NATO, all of this, all that yeah. happens all the time. Um, so you know, I'm I'm reluctant to give him a whole lot of credit for solving this problem that he <laughs> created. But anyway, uh, the other part, I I am not I am no China expert by any means. Um, but I, you know, a lot of the stuff when you when you read about China is is that uh, China's in this. They're they're playing the long game, right? And I can't help but feel like China has been trying to figure out what the hell Trump is doing for a long time, and that they've maybe come to the point of realizing that you know, this is for eight tops years, right? That we have to deal with this guy, and in some ways. Um, rather than like dramatically altering or changing stuff, it's we're just gonna wait it out. We're gonna see what happens. And and I kind of wonder if the sort of the the um, the de-escalation is more of a like we're we're not gonna take the bait anymore. We're gonna just kind of wait and see what happens. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. What do you what do you two think? Well, I, I mean, what I liked about this, <laughs> he announced this, and then the stories immediately come on, coming out of China where we have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> it seems to be a pattern. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a good point. I, they are, they're very interested in the collective, which the collective is not interested in, you know, mm-hmm. short time spans of less than 20 to 50 years. Um, I, I think they... <clears throat> They're in a good enough position where the rhetoric isn't going to change too much of their policy and actions right now regardless. Um, And the two economies are too intertwined to do too much from either perspective. Um, And realistically, I mean, they hold the upper hand in most of this stuff because they're not abiding by international standards or treaties or laws, especially in terms of intellectual property rights. yeah, I, I mean, you can fight, I guess, to a certain point, but at least the appearance of a uh, a loss at this point doesn't seem to really factor into their thinking. And I don't think it matters that much. Well, the other element here is that they're not a democracy, right? So in the U.S. political right. system, you have to worry about the short-term political implications of actions. And I think Phil's right. They can play the long game here. And the reality is that the tariff war is hurting the U.S. economy more so in the immediate effect than it is in China. In China, I mean, whether you're talking about the farmers or steel or whatnot, I mean that that is is costing Americans more. The tariffs are are a negative externality that the public is eventually going to push back on. Whereas China can say like, "Hey, we're willing to wait this out." The other thing about this is that there was no agreement. It was a general, vague statement about taking 90 days off. It used to be that when there were agreements, uh, both countries would release a joint statement where they would say, this is what we've agreed to. The Trump administration has stopped doing that. So the Trump administration releases its statement. China releases its statement. They're wildly different. So Mm -hmm. there's no sense of what they've really agreed to. My sense is that China is going to kind of wait to see what Trump does. And if he does something that's useful for them, they'll agree. Otherwise, they're going to continue to play this game. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. uh, it's it's bizarre. I, 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 there's no reason to claim victory here because nothing really good other than it hasn't gotten worse. 
What I, I saw a few people this week <clears throat> that were arguing essentially that Trump's policy to like you can be critical of a lot of stuff that Trump has done, but his policy towards China has largely been successful. Um, mm. I, I I don't I don't see that. Yeah. I see the I see tariffs. I see lost jobs. You know the 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 auto workers you know laid off this this week. The farm subsidies that we've had to put in place because of. I, I, do you see any way that this trade war has been a success for him other than as a PR success for the base who's upset about China? Well, I, I mean, I guess to kind of not necessarily push back on it, but I, we haven't really seen this type of escalation of, of um, trade tensions in, I don't know, the past several administrations, I would guess. In like 200 years? In like 200 <laughs> years or so, if you want to, you know, be specific about it. But I, I I, think you can, if you're a proponent of the system that he's putting in place or the doctrine that he's putting in place, you can kind of almost see it mirrored in, um, I don't want to say authoritarian, but more centralized governmental systems like China, where they do play a longer game. There will be consequences in the immediate, which we are absolutely not used to, but in the end, it might be beneficial. Having said that, I have no idea if that's going to be the case, and considering we don't sure. exist in that type of centralized governmental system, it probably won't work, but I think it's something that has we haven't necessarily vetted out as of yet. Yeah, we, should say that, we should state that what he's pushing for is right. I mean, China does violate the rules, right. intellectual property right. Look, I mean, there's there's a whole host of issues that China is breaking the rules. Now, the Trump administration is not the first administration to push back against this. I mean, you can go back three, four, five administrations where they've done it. They haven't done it like Trump. Now, the question is, is Trump's <laughs> approach going to be effective? And I would say no, right? I don't. I don't think... Being a lunatic is going to get you a better trade deal. Uh, I mean, especially, I mean, look at what happened with NAFTA 2. For all of Trump's antics, basically we got a slightly updated NAFTA agreement. It didn't It didn't dramatically change anything. So, in, a, in, a, in a damaged relationship with our top ex trading partner. Exactly, right. So I, I, I don't see this playing out better. Uh, I think there are times, to, again, to circle back to to George Bush where restraint could be useful and I, I Absolutely. think this is an issue. I think we should just have a governmental system where they're in place for life <laughs> and that solves a lot of these problems and we don't have oh. to think about these things every couple of weeks. Oh, better yet, a world government with a leader oh, in place man. for life. man, <laughs> doesn't that sound awesome? <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, so on Tuesday, a bipartisan group of senior senators uh, received a classified briefing by the CIA director. And in a bipartisan way, they emerged from that meeting pretty damn convinced that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, ordered the killing of Saudi dissident Jamal Khashoggi. Senator Lindsey Graham called Prince Mohammed a wrecking ball. Richard Shelby, Republican from Alabama, stated that, quote, all evidence points to that, that all this leads back to the crown prince. This is conduct that none of us in America would approve of any way. This puts the Senate at odds with Trump and the White House. We all remember Trump's official statement, which concluded, maybe he did it, maybe he didn't. Uh, Phil, the fact that a group of bipartisan senators came down so clearly against the White House position is not good. Uh, what's your sense of this and where it's going? Um... You know, I don't know. I, it'll be interesting to see what they do with it, right? Because the Senate, like with the Russia situation, they, there could be out of Congress sanctions that come against Saudi Arabia that then place Trump in this position of having to sort of take a side. I would love to see that happen. 
um, you know, and I, I don't know if that will actually happen or, or not. Um, I, you know, I keep coming back to when I when I think about this topic or when when I it is it is pretty stunning to see so many senators, mm-hmm. Republicans included, come out and not just say uh, there's interesting stuff or it's complicated, but to outright say it's pretty obvious that he Lindsey Graham. This. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, now, whether Lindsey Graham will do anything about no. it, I don't know. But, no. but again, it, it doesn't take Lindsey Graham. It takes a handful of yeah. sen- of Republican senators to to want to do something about it. This is an interesting parallel to what we started with, which yes. is the 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 Mueller and and Russia stuff. And so, you know, when it's just playing out as a PR, you know, Donald Trump's tweeting about it, Saudi Arabia is saying stuff, Fox News is talking about it. It's easy for Republicans to either not take a stance or to say it's unclear. This is an interesting situation where when presented with the evidence by a professional whose job it is to put together the evidence, they walk out essentially with a holy shit reaction, mm-hmm. right? Like this is not, this is not a he said, she said thing. This is a, this is like, he did know. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's where I kind of, there's part of me that wonders like when the Mueller report comes out to what extent do, again, it doesn't require every Republican in the Senate, um, to, to be convinced by it. But I, I wonder if there are enough, you know, five or 10 who see the evidence in this sort of situation and are like, well, shit, like there's no denying yeah, a tipping point. Yeah. Do, yeah. do something about it then. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. realistically, yeah. the, the, the thought now is that if the evidence is there, they're going to rescind U.S. support from uh, um, so, uh, the, the Saudis' yeah. involvement in the the war in Yemen. Yep. Which I, I mean, we provide should all. Should have happened of, a long time ago. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Which there's is, no reason this should be happening yeah. at this point. Yeah. And it's it's an easy win yeah. if they don't do it at this point. Which realistically, I think everybody is under the impression or understands that the Saudis were some it, at the very least somehow involved. Um, at most, I, I mean, it's. It's it's just it's it's obvious oh, at this yeah. point. It's so obvious. Um, it, it, yeah, there they, it, you need to have some sort of legitimate action on a bipartisan level that shows that you're willing to cross lines in instances where there is irrefutable evidence that so you know something needs to be done about this. I, I'm really curious of whether or not they'll actually go that far. Yeah, and I don't know if they will or not. I, I keep coming back to why if if it's so clear for everybody else, Republican senators, Democratic senators. Why is Trump clinging to this position that we don't know? So Phil is giving me the money sign. (laughs) Is is it that? I mean, it it can't be these military contracts. Those aren't worth all that much. It's Trump contracts. So it's transactional. my, my, My take on it is it's not surprising that the two countries in the world where Trump's foreign policy makes the least sense are Russia and Saudi Arabia, where the Trump organization has the most financial yeah. contacts and stuff at stake. I, that, I mean, I just, it, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but it just, the dots connect pretty easily, right? They, the, the, the Saudis are huge investors in what's the place in New York that, that Kushner was building. Oh yeah. That's, oh, um, the top. Yes. Yeah. There's just, there's just lots of financial. There's a lot for, not for Republicans, but for Donald Trump to gain from continued goodwill oh. from Vladimir Putin and from the Saudi regime. If that's true, it's really terrible, right? I mean, and I, yeah. I hope that's not the case, but yeah, I think you, you may be right there. Oh, that's that's bad. That's bad, Nick. It's just all bad. <laughs> it's really, really bad. I mean, the fact that we're that we are as involved in that 
you know, quote unquote civil war at this point yeah. is is insane. Uh, the fact that it would take something like this to yeah. potentially withdraw our support for something that's killed tens of thousands of, yeah. of civilians is it's it's just insane. It's really, really crazy. And Saudi Arabia is terrible, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're real bad. They're, yeah. they're, bad people. they're terrible on human rights. They have been for a long time. We should, as a country, be ashamed that we have supported them for so long because of oil and strategic reasons in the in the Middle East. Now, when you're doing it not as some big picture, we have oil interests and security interests there, but are instead doing it potentially because an individual has financial interests there. The the like the the amount of um, you know the level of how sickening it is should should rise to a to yeah. a new level if that's actually what's yeah. occurring. So I, I guess the the same thing could be said about any of our, our trading partners, specifically someone like China who has a horrendous human rights record. Sure. At what point does it become not cost effective to ruin these relationships based on instances of morality and human rights? But you don't have to end the relationship. I mean, that's the yeah, thing. Like, it's done. It's the, good the, the one or the other. The reality is that the way Trump talks about this, it's as if Saudi Arabia has all the power and the United States has uh, sure. none. The reality is it's flipped. The, the, you know, Saudi Arabia is dependent upon the United States more so than the reciprocal. And, and so the United States could come out and condemn this. We could cut off, you know, arms sales for a while and still have a relationship there. You could. Um, but realistically, we not necessarily de we depend on them for the weapons contracts necessarily, but they are a proxy for our policy in the region right. that is easily sure. influenced. Especially when you think about Iran, right? That's, yeah, that's you have really all these important. other, you have Iran, you have Afghanistan, you have elements Israel. in Iraq, you have ISIS and terrorist organizations. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's, I, I would love to hear the analysis of, you know, State Department officials or anybody on the balance of um, monetary value and strategic value of the Saudis at this mm -hmm. point and see which comes out on top. I, and and I, I do, I think that it's, it's deeply complicated, but I think we also end up with this false dichotomy oftentimes where it's like Iran is bad, so we have to support yes. Saudi Arabia. When in fact... You know, you can you can think that they're both bad. Right? Yes. <laughs> that we're not gonna that that um, just because we don't like Iran, it doesn't justify. So this is this is what we so many of the things that we did in the Cold War that looking back on are should be embarrassing came from that same logic, which is that we're wanting to defeat the Soviet Union. And so we'll look the other way while these horrible, atrocious things happen. And it would be nice if we said the reason why we need to win this, you know, this war again or this, you know, ideological war against Iran is because of democracy and human rights and all these things that do matter. And so if those things matter, then it also has to matter in Saudi Arabia yes. when we look at them as an ally. But then it also has to matter in every country in that region, sure. which realistically sure. almost none of them, uh, you know, are, 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 are good influences in, um, yeah, I'm just losing my words real bad at this point. Um, I, I, they they just don't evince our our um, uh, our moral standings, our our um, sure. you know perspectives on democracy or anything. Realistically, we abandon the entire region at that point. If we're talking about it from the perspective of a moral compass or what we think is right, and that from a strategic standpoint, that leaves the door open to a lot of very negative influences, including Russia, sure. China, any other, you know, thing that any other entity that doesn't 
uh, align with our perspectives. I don't think you have to. That was horribly no, no, worded. No, they, they, there's, a, there's, there's value like there, a Nick. A beer and a half in. It doesn't have to be all morality. I think you can have a realist view of the international sure. system. And oh, then, yeah. And look at the Middle East and say, there is no strategic value in the United States being all behind Saudi Arabia and all behind Israel, that we could create a balance of interest. And in some ways, I think what the Obama administration was trying to do was to say, we're going to pull some of that support away from Saudi Arabia, give Iran a chance, like create a true balance. That's realism there, right? I mean, thinking about balancing those two against each Absolutely. other. Absolutely. We're going to pull some support there. We're going to put some people in uh, in Libya and, you know, Western Africa and just kind of sow chaos no, everywhere. No, 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 no. I, You could argue it's not chaos. <laughs> it's, it's like you're thinking about creating more stability there. I, I think that would be a much, much more fruitful foreign I, I, policy. But it, it also comes back to where we're underestimating our own power, which is what you were talking mm-hmm. about earlier, right? Which yeah. is to say that to, you could you could say we it's important to support Saudi Arabia in order to keep Iran contained, if that's the if that's the goal. But you could still in that say Saudi Arabia, we're going to support you, but yes. you got to cut that shit out, exactly. right? Exactly. Like, and, and we have the ability to do, oh. and that's exactly what we haven't done in the past. Even there was the rhetoric, at least yeah. that the fact that we have been unwilling to even criticize Saudi over this this very blatant killing of a journalist is is yeah that's that that's we should do better yeah i think so and the other disappointing thing that comes out thinking about that line of thought is that you know these republican senators have come out and said he clearly did this and it makes me frustrated with a guy like jim mattis the secretary of defense who's defended trump over the last week on this to say like well it's not you know there's no smoking gun he could have taken a more forceful stance and pushed the president on this issue and so both pompeo and mattis mm-hmm. are they're getting a they're getting a thumbs down for me this week. Sad. Yeah. Hashtag sad. sad. All right, moving on. Speaking of Pompeo. <laughs> That's right. Institutions are for losers, Nick. In a major yes. speech in Brussels on Tuesday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo tried to explain to representatives of the European Union how a nationalist like Donald Trump can still be a leader of the global international order. The solution is to reform or actually eliminate a whole bunch of institutions like the United Nations, the European Union, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the World Trade Organization, the Organization of American States, and the African Union. And keep others. Well, basically one, NATO, which, if we're (laughs) honest, the president doesn't like very much. According to Pompeo, quote, international institutions must help facilitate cooperation that bolsters the security and values of the free world, or they must be reformed or eliminated. Now, it's easy to assume that Trump's nationalism is empty rhetoric, but for guys like Pompeo and John Bolton, state sovereignty is the only thing that matters, and they genuinely would like to see these institutions wither and die. I find this more than a little terrifying. How about you guys, Phil? You, you a little worried? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, the, I, I haven't read the speech, um, but, the, there, I mean, there's a couple of things that come to mind, one of which is the fact that they focus on NATO after mm-hmm. Trump has done so much to undermine NATO. Um, but even more than that, I, I think the, the part that's the most shocking to me is that y- you would argue that in, international institutions that have to help facilitate cooperation that bolsters security and values of the free world, or they go away, and then he lists all these things, the fact that they can't see the extent to which these institutions have done just yes, that yes. since the end of World War II. If you if you go through those those organizations, the UN, the IMF, the World Bank, like there are critics who would say that the World Bank and the IMF have been tools of the West, right? Like <laughs> that they have they have undermined they have done tremendous damage to the developing world in their attempts to, you know, expand Western values around the world. Um, so it's it's 
<laughs> it's shocking to me that someone would look at those institutions and say that we have to get rid of them because they haven't furthered Western values and, and security. Yes. Uh, all of which we have helped create, if not created ourselves. <laughs> and, and served our interests, right? That's right. the other thing. I, I, I don't think we need to be naive idealists to say, like, oh, we should have a, a world government here. These institutions are created to, to help states pursue their own strategic interests. And the United States has used those institutions for those ends. And it is in our interest to continue to have them around. I, 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 I struggle with this one. Well, I mean, even from a from a, I guess, a pragmatic realist view, I, I mean, the opposing viewpoint where these are instruments and tools of the West, that's not entirely untrue. This has helped to right. spread our, our economic system since the end of World War Two to every corner of the planet at this point. And that is something I, I think that is more, I guess, depending on the, the perspective that you look for, uh, more binding or more insidious than um, than anything that uh, an institution like NATO could ever conceive of of uh, of of influencing. It's it's it's. I, you just you just read a book, dude. You just gotta read a book. <laughs> 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 um, you got Phil with that one. <laughs> I totally forgot what I was going to say. I had a really good point. In my mind. <laughs> but th this is this is a topic where I think there's a fair amount of agreement within scholars of international relations that you know these institutions are absolutely tools of the West, but they're valuable. And, right. and you look right. back at why did we create these institutions in the aftermath of World War II? Because countries kept going to war. Europe kept going to war. They serve a real value. Are they perfect? No. But Phil's got it. <laughs> I remember my point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I think the other part that's weird about it is that they're fairly low-stakes institutions, yes. right? Mm -hmm. So the, the, the criticism that comes from the right, from, from you know, the from some of the some of the Bolton types or whatever is that the UN is you know completely ineffective it's it's a weird dual criticism that the UN is inept and can't do a damn thing but they're also coming to take away all of our power and our rights which are <laughs> which aren't you can't have both of those and the fact of the matter is that it's somewhere in the middle right that they they're they're not they're, they can be useful while at the same time they're pretty non-threatening right yeah. they're useful because they allow the u.s to to push its its points and its values so we take the u.n for example right we have this permanent seat on the security council the security council can't do a whole lot to limit the the interactions in in in, in the world but um it's a nice platform for the u.s to try to make these arguments and to add legitimacy to stuff so it's there, there's a lot of value that can come from these institutions in a without that many costs. Like it's not that we're actually giving up a whole lot of power to participate in these. So the the critique is a little perplexing to me. It it seems like a, a a pretty good win, you know, like cost benefit ratio when you talk about these institutions. The U.S. created these institutions. I mean, you think about the the United Nations. We we were instrumental in the creation of this. The reason we have a veto on the Security Council is because the U.S. wanted that. If you look at the World Bank and the IMF, the United States has so basically those institutions. The more you contribute the greater your vote is. And so, so we the, own it. Right, exactly. Right. The United States <laughs> contributes at a level where we can veto everything, and we've not allowed anybody else to get a veto, right? I mean, so these institutions reflect U.S. interest. You couldn't ask for a better situation. And John Bolton's, and I think Mike Pompeo's, their fear of these institutions, to Phil point, Phil's point, is irrational. When you hear John Bolton talk about the International Criminal Court, 
it's insane. It's as if this institution is going to invade and take over the country. No, that one's not. It's just completely useless. <laughs> right. Go on. Uh, no, it's, I, I, all of this strikes me as just really counterproductive. I, I, we talk a lot about partisanship on the podcast. I think Democrats and Republicans in general, the mainstream foreign policy views of both parties, reject this perspective of the Trump administration. It's, it's one of the few things that there's bipartisan agreement on and and we're really veering in a dangerous direction Uh, i i I do think that at the the sort of institutional elite level i think that you know amongst political elites you're you're right i I don't think that most republicans in office would agree with trump necessarily but i i do think he reflects a view on the ground right Mm -hmm. you watch you watch fox news you talk to you know average you know republicans and, and there's a lot who have deep concerns about the u.n and i see in this um, part of this, I feel like we talked about this a few weeks ago, this stepping back from of the U.S., this kind of shift, this generational shift towards more isolationism that's not limited just to the to Republicans. Right. Yeah. I mean, there have been critiques of the World Trade Organization, the IMF and the World Bank from from the left. Yeah. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders, this kind of pulling back from trade and whatnot. And so uh, this uh, across the U.S., this decision that these institutions that have essentially brought some level of world order for the past 70 years that we're now not so sold on them and are stepping back from them um that isolationism in general is yeah that's that's the part that's concerning me from from all sides well i i mean i think there is it's a fair critique to say that the institutions as they exist right now are are either ineffective or or run in a specific way that do not um, take the interests of the individual sovereign countries into account. And this is a kind of general backlash against globalism and, and global trade. And um, I, I don't think that those those thoughts are should be taken lightly. I, and I think we're seeing the results of that. That doesn't mean that the institutions themselves should go away. There should be significant reform and there should be an understanding that these are, are not useless things that we've helped to create over the past three quarters of a century. They they have purpose and they serve to create stability. Um, are they perfect? No, but it's our responsibility as, as members and specifically the United States as leaders of most of these organizations to make them better in the face of what we have to deal with right now. It's yeah, to get rid of them is insane. I agree with I think both you're, of you're, you. Your your critique is totally. I, <laughs> yes. I agree. I should like. I I'm glad you said that because Thank you. to critique these institutions is not. They're open to criticism, right? Yeah. There's things that can and should be reformed about them. Mm-hmm. The thing that blows my mind is to critique them for uh, not enhance, not bolstering the security and values of the free world. Like yeah. that they have not done any of that is what's where I'm like, yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> All right, for our final topic, we're going to Wisconsin, Nick. Oh, yeah? My home state. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, there, ho, there. It's time for some Wisconsin talk. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that's your other podcast, right? That's right. Hey, there, ho, there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so after a long, sleepless night of debate in Wisconsin, Republican lawmakers early Wednesday morning pushed through a sweeping set of bills that will limit the power of Wisconsin's incoming governor and attorney general both Democrats. If lame duck Governor Scott Walker signs on, the legislation would reduce the number of early voting days, restrict gubernatorial appointments, and require legislative uh, backing for certain decisions traditionally made by the Attorney General and the Governor. Republicans explained the moves to limit the authority of the Governor as part of a long-needed change in the balance of power. 
which they said had become tilted in the favor of the executive branch, and that they just now finally are getting to this issue uh, as Democrats are coming into office. Others suggest there's a more nefarious purpose here. Uh, Phil, this seems pretty sneaky. What's your What's your thoughts about what's going on in Wisconsin? Yeah, this is this is awful, right? This is terrible. <laughs> I mean, so again, I, I can. What's weird to, is to see, like, so from a comparative politics perspective, when you look around the world at democratization and, and whatnot, one of the key pillars of democracy is for a democracy to be solid and consolidated is the peaceful transfer of power, right? It's that sometimes you lose, and when you lose, you accept that loss and you hand power over to the person who the people have chosen. And it may not be fun, and you may not like the other person, but the institutions themselves are bigger than the parties right and so to see in the united states this because this happened with north carolina mm -hmm. a few years ago as well um to see this playing out in in uh, the sense of if if we don't win we will act to limit the i mean that's the thing right if, if you think the executive is too powerful and you've had republican control of the of the state for however many years you had plenty of time to do this the fact that it's happening as the democrats are about to take over is incredibly transparent and it's really, really, it, it, I was going to say disconcerting. It's bad, yeah. right? This is this is just, it's not, um, it, it, it's either evidence of or further um, entrenching us in that partisanship, the idea that the other side is evil, and so we're going to keep them from carrying out, you know, it's this win-at-all-cost mentality. It, it's, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. The end. The end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's it's just such bad policy and bad timing. It's it's just it's amateur hour. I guess it's Wisconsin, but whatever. Yeah. Oh. Sorry, Wisconsin. We tried. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's I just the fact that you would do this so blatantly. Uh, realistically, I I don't necessarily disagree with some of their points, but if you're going to make those points, make them before the election happens. You fucking jackasses yes. I, I just it's it's insane to me and what really disturbs me more than anything is that you the the parties as they're as they're made up now continue to set this precedent again like Phil you were spot on that the other side is evil that they have nothing of value to provide and we need to stop them at all costs from doing anything to change what we've put in place because it only swings the pendulum harder the next time around and I just this kind of zero-sum game that they continue to play just and what that does for future generations and the ability to have dialogue between parties and to create sound balanced compromise policy is just you're just assholes like just stop <laughs> you're really screwing us over and it's really starting to bug me <laughs> It, 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 it feels like this is the sort of thing that has to have like decades of build up to yeah. it, right? So it's, right. It, you have to have like put in place all of those beliefs that the other side is evil in order to get away with this. Because for people to support it, they have to think that Democrats having power is is an abomination, right? Yeah. If, so anyway, I, I'm reminded of the, the the brilliant jurist Brett Kavanaugh who said. 
what goes around comes around, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, so yeah, reap the the whirlwind. (laughs) What's going to happen here is if this becomes a trend, this is going to happen over and over and over again. Where suddenly you're so afraid of the other side taking power that you you manipulate the the process. You and again, it is entirely legal what the Republicans in Wisconsin are doing. They have the right to do this in a lame duck session. They can pass this, but then you're going to encourage in the future. Democrats to do this, other Republicans to do it, and you're creating a fear where we we have to do everything we can to prevent the other side from taking power. And and Phil's right when you study other countries around the world, this is how democracies die, or this is how dictatorships emerge because they say you can't allow this other side to take power because it would be so terrible and so dangerous. And that's what the Republicans in Wisconsin are arguing that we can't we can't trust Democrats to govern the state. We have to restrict their ability to do things. And yeah, it's it's deep, deep deeply, deeply problematic. <laughs> Democracy is less important than the policy. Exactly. Is what, is what yeah. The argument has yeah. I, so are Democrats taking over the governorship and the legislature? No, or just the, no, it'll okay. be divided government. So you'll okay. still have uh, you'll have yeah, a Republican. I'm sorry, a Republican uh, legislature and a a Democratic governor and attorney general. And so they're specifically targeting those two. Um, and, and again, they're they're very smart in what they're pursuing. Some of it deals with this lawsuit that's going against uh, Obamacare. But it feels like a serious overreach in terms of what the legisla- legislators should be doing. You'd like to think that if the, the, the expansive executive power in Wisconsin was really troubling to Republicans, this would have been task one when they took over the House and right, the governorship, right? right. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, a few years ago, with the Wisconsin, they were kicking around the idea of allowing the citizens of Wisconsin to shoot cats again. Um, and I was just terrified, right? You know, this, you can't you can't pass this, right? I mean, this that, this puts you in Texasville, right, Phil? I mean, where you're like, shooting What's cats. What's wrong with Texas? <laughs> they, they, you can shoot t- cats in Texas, right, I, Phil? I, I know of multiple people who shoot cats in Texas. <laughs> Isn't yeah. Wisconsin kind of the Texas of the North? Kind of, yeah. When they do this, you know, like the yeah yeah Not the charm the, the I, least healthy states in the union. It's usually Wisconsin and Texas leading the charge. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this was a fun one, Nick. Oh, boy. We were all over the place. It was good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, Dare. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're going to have to do a second podcast. It's just called Hey, Dare, Ho, Dare. <laughs> oh, sorry, Wisconsin. We love you. Yeah. We don't think there's many of you up there that listen to us anyway, so whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, if you guys like the podcast, uh, questions, comments, uh, anything like that, want to know what we're up to, um, future things that we're doing. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul P O L, Facebook at Barstool Politics, uh, Untapped, uh, where you can find all the beers that we try, as uh, well as reviews of all of them. Uh, you can download that on iOS and Android. We are Barstool Politics. Um, the podcast, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Review us, share us, like us, whatever you do on your own individual platform. Um, please do that. We always appreciate the support. Uh, and Predictive. Uh, like we said at the, the start of the show, uh, Predicted is a real money political prediction market, uh, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, Barstool Politics listeners, if you open up an account, uh, a new account, you, rece- or you will receive up to a $20 match uh, on your first deposit. So if you open up a $20 account, uh, you'll um, predict it will match the $20. So you get $40 to use on Predicted. Uh, just use the promo code or promo uh, link. Uh, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20 uh, and get your free money. It's a lot of fun. 
I'm pretty sure I've had like several mini strokes during this episode because I just <laughs> cannot talk. You did well, Dick. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, anything else, guys? Oh. Cool. We will be back next week then. Cheers. See you then. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>